Welcome to the Yoga Connection with Zorananda. The Yoga Connection is a deep dive into everything yoga. Follow along with Zorananda and his guests as they discuss yoga history, spirituality, different practices, and the many misconceptions that have followed along throughout the years of yogic tradition. Hello and welcome to The Yoga Connection. I am Zorananda. All right. Welcome. And first of all, thank you for listening to the new episodes that I've been putting out. Uh, my goal is to do an episode a week. Um, I had a difficult time in the past because um, from working a full-time job and trying to handle everything else that I'm doing, recording music, um, teaching yoga, um, and then having a podcast, trying to find people to be guests is where, um, yeah, I was just falling short on because you can't do everything yourself. Um, and so my approach this time is to do more solo episodes, uh, put a lot of content of all the different philosophies, all the different energetic systems, and there's just so much. So it's really easy every week to kind of think of a topic or to plan ahead of time. So, um, yeah, I was actually quite happy to finish with the koshas because now I can go forward doing new topics. Um, and so, the next energetic system that I'm looking at and we'll be discussing is the pranavayus. Um, in yoga philosophy and in the energetic systems, I find that the chakras are overly talked about. Like everyone loves the chakras. There's like every, every, freaking yogi or every author new age spiritualist loves associating everything with the chakras um but there's not too much represented um when we consider the koshas and the pranavayus actually when we get to the pranavayus it's like there's really not much um and i'm not too sure why i think out of the three I found the pranavayus the most interesting um, for me personally. And, and I think it's because for me, I like to be more objective on things. Um, it's, it's really easy when you're going into the spiritual world and you're going into yoga and stuff that it becomes a really subjective and it becomes um, more about um uh symbology and metaphor and so i think people love the chakras because um you can talk about the colors and kind of where they're located in the body and there's this association with different parts of the bodies and the glands but it's you can't prove it because you can't find it in the body right and that's where empirical science 
kind of goes all of that is woo woo right um and similar with the koshas right you can't really pick something in the body to associate um you know what all the layers are and you know with the chakras you know if you go through muladhara chakra which is the root chakra svadhisthana which is the um uh, reproductive kind of chakra and then so on and so forth as you go up you can associate with the parts of the body but um it still s- remains in this abstract kind of fantasy world of how things work but when you get to the pranavayus i find that each so there's there's five pranavayus and each one actually can be more closely associated to a physiological function um so let's dive right into it um so what are the pranavayus um prana and vayu it's two different words so prana simply means life force or vital energy and vayu means wind so pranavayus means the life force wins and like I said, there are five pranavayus, and they are apanavayu, which is downward wind, pranavayu, which is an upward wind, samanavayu, which is a concentrated inward wind, vyanavayu, which is a an expanding wind, so it's a, like an outward pushing wind, and then udanavayu, which is a circulating wind, which is like um brings it all together and uh the values are responsible or associated with particular physiological functions and today we're going to be diving deep into upon a value and so now for the next five episodes uh each episode is going to be on a particular value um, i was originally planning to do all of this into one episode but I think, you know, I even kind of divided the time up. I would spend like 11 minutes on each value. But I really want to get into, um, you know, what each value means um, in regards to physicality, mentality, and spirituality, and how these values manifest. And also, what kind of practices you can do so that there's a practical element to it. So that, um, you know, if you are a yoga practitioner listening to this and and you've never heard about the pranavayus, you can add this knowledge to your practice so that when you're doing your practice, you can take a look at and say, oh, okay, if I'm doing a standward or a standing forward fold, you are basically working on bringing awareness to a downward force right because you're placing yourself in a position where everything is pointing downwards right you're grounding down through the feet you're folding forward over your legs you're bringing your torso downwards your hands downwards right so just as an example so like i said uh means downward wind Um, i have this great website that i can translate sanskrit or hindi words 
into English. And it's it's the best that I've found. Um, it's just, uh, the website's just dictionary.tamilcube.com, uh, T-A-M-I-L-Cube.com. Um, and you can even just like backslash Sanskrit slash dictionary dot ASPX. And it takes you to this translator. And um, so you can put in upana, um, click on Sanskrit to English translation, and the translation directly um, means upana, the downward air, <laughs> which goes through the anus. So, <laughs> uh, otherwise, breathing out, expiration, one of the five vital airs opposed to prana, a cultivated physical faculty utilized in certain Hatha yoga exercises. So right in the definitions, and there's like a bunch, like there's the life force that goes down, the prana that moves downwards, the nerve current, which governs the abdominal region. So you can see that it's already pointing towards a particular part of the body where this downward um, force has a lot to do with digestion and the movement of the bowels downwards. Um, so like I wrote here, upon it is associated with elimination processes like digestion and moving waste from the body. So byproducts like urine and feces rely on a downward force to allow for elimination. And so you can kind of get a sense of um, this downward force isn't an idea that's being superimposed it's a function that is naturally occurring that's being observed that's been given a name so these yogis are looking at this and they're going oh the body is naturally processing food and is naturally moving that stuff downwards for elimination and so we'll call that the downward literally the downward wind the downward force and so this is where i started to see that there's more of a science to yoga than it is a religion especially getting into the pranavayus that the observation and the awareness of what is happening with the body and how it's functioning is that you can use these terms to understand it more scientifically. Um, and this is what actually helped me realize that yoga is more of a science than it is a religion. If anything, it's not a religion at all. The religious aspect that we think of as a part of yoga has more to do with particular religious practices um, in certain sects of um, in India. I don't want to say Hinduism because... Even Hinduism isn't even the right word. Hinduism is a made-up word by the British. Like, this is what people don't understand. It's like, I'm, they're not Hindus, you know? It's like there are, they have their own terms for what accounts for their religion. Like, Kashmiri Shaivism, for example, right? So, out of Kashmir, there's this Shaivism, and Shaivism is uh, Shiva, so Kashmiri Shaivism is a religious sect that worships Shiva, right? So they wouldn't consider themselves Hindus, right? Like the word Hindu came from the Indus Valley, Indus, and Himalayas. So they 
took two words and mushed them together and called the people in the Indus Valley around the Himalayas the Hindus. And then they looked at their religious practices and they just called it Hinduism. The more you know, right? Knowledge is power. So in the physical sense, Apana is working directly with or associated directly with the digestive system and moving things downwards and also circulation in the sense of like moving blood downwards um, with like the definition said as well, breathing out the exhale, the like the moving out of breath. Um, and so mentally and emotionally, upon is associated with sleep and to some degree laziness and groundedness and alertness so we can't always be stimulated and activated right we have two nervous systems we have the sympathetic nervous system we have the parasympathetic nervous system we have one the sympathetic nervous system that deals with fight or flight or freeze it's dealing with the activation the stimulation of the nervous system in a movement like deliberate movement way and then we have sympathetic the parasympathetic nervous system that has to do with rest and digest right so i would i would think in my mind if i wanted to keep on the kind of train of scientific thinking that um the parasympathetic nervous system is can be associated with apana where there's this like downward force that's pulling you into sleepiness that's pulling you into chilling out and resting um and and so the important thing here is to understand that there can be overt negative effects of too much downward force in the sense of like laziness where you're just lethargic all the time and um What will be important to consider in bringing awareness to this stuff is understanding what kind of foods we eat, um, how much we're eating, um, especially with the pana because it's dealing directly with the digestive system. So if we're eating a lot of heavy foods all the time and a lot of processed foods, a lot of foods that are going to be hard to digest or cause complications with digestion, um, it's going to have an effect on the energetics of our digestive system and our nervous system to allow for a clean output, essentially. And and so then we can kind of see this association and uh, this integrated effect between the physical body and the mind in what we eat and what we do right so if we're largely lazy all the time lethargic we don't really exercise we're not really going out too much we not are not that active we're eating a lot of heavier greasier foods um, we're feeling sleepy all the time and uh, irritable and um, then we can kind of see that that downward energy is becoming stagnant and um, we're complicit with it uh, 
and complacent. And essentially, we need to add and introduce into our life particular practices so that we can move that energy. And that's, and that's simply what yoga is and what the asana practice is, what the pranayama practice is. So like your physical posturing and your physical practice to your breath work that we are becoming aware that the lifestyle that we have is creating lethargy and stagnance and that we need to be able to clear that out of us. Um, so before I get into that last point, um, spiritually then apana is associated with grounding and stability. And so to connect to the earth and develop stability and focus and concentration. And there seems to be an overt emphasis on getting out of the body in meditation. So if you've gone down the route of like new age spirituality and the fluffiness of languaging, um, what I found is that there is this overt emphasis on leaving the body and um, that there's this importance of a cosmic connection. And what I found is that leaning in that direction spiritually can lead to an ungrounded foundation that neglects the importance of being grounded on earth. So it's almost the antithesis where instead of having a, a heavy, lethargic, stagnant apana, you have this kind of ethereal, maybe like weak, maybe flighty apana that again is going to have some kind of negative effect on your digestive system and your nervous system. Um, you might be a little bit too much stimulated because you don't have that rest and digest. You have this like jittery kind of ungrounded flutteriness. Then, um, you're going to be disassociated from the, your, your body, your body, you're going to neglect eating. You're going to be again, neglecting your nutrition. So you're not going to be eating that much food. You're going to be eating more so, um, lighter stuff right? So you're kind of going on the opposite end of what, what you're wanting to do with apana in, in this situation. And, and so this is where having and introducing a, an asana practice and a pranayama practice, um, can be very beneficial because they'll contribute to awareness of Apanavayu and how it manifests in your body, in your mind, in your spirit. And in the, in, in the two cases, you'll kind of see two different things of how it manifests. When you start getting into your body and doing a physical practice, you'll start to notice how sluggish your digestive system is. You'll start to notice how lethargic you are. You'll start to notice because you'll have this contrast of living your normal kind of um, lethargic life. Um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, where uh, you're not very active. And then once you start to introduce this active practice and this and asana pranayama 
you'll suddenly feel fired up and it'll be conflicting because if you're so used to that heavy groundedness or that heavy um, lethargy, you might not like the stimulation. You might not like the sudden movement of apana because you're so used to it being down and so used to it being slow and sludgy that as soon as it starts getting kicked up, you might think to yourself that it's too much. On the opposite end, if you are you have a, a, a weak apana that's um, ungrounded and flighty and um, instable, when you you'll have to be really particular with what kind of practice you're doing because if you're doing an active heated practice, you those type of people love those practices. And it just contributes to their flightiness. And so what they'll need is more of a slower practice, more of a meditative practice, more of a grounding practice where they're doing more of a yin class. They're doing slower pranayama. They're focusing more on chanting and meditation. Those classes will be super boring to these people. But that's what they need. They need the boring. They need the still, slow, recalibrate and so yeah so i I have some notes here that i'll be i'm just trying to read and and talk and so you can't really (laughs) try uh so you can't really tell um i'm trying to do it well enough but um oh so a good indicator of where your apana is is doing balancing postures so like standing on one leg or um saying doing like pistol squats or doing chair pose but you're up on your tiptoes um you're doing warrior three you're doing something where your focus is on balancing on one leg so typically we don't bring much attention to our feet when we're standing and walking around until we're in an awkward position standing on one foot right so when you're just doing your daily thing standing walking around we're so used to the uh the dynamics of of that movement that we don't really have to think about our feet we don't have to place our attention but as soon as we're we suddenly are in an awkward position where we have to balance on one foot. What happens? Right. Um, and you can try this out right now. Okay. Um, so if, if you're in a safe place to do this and it's not going to weird anybody out, even if it does, whatever, um, just stand up and then shift onto one foot and then lift the other foot into the air. Okay. What happens? Chances are you wobbled a little bit, had to find your balance, had to stabilize, had to recalibrate. So why is that? So the body is always seeking equilibrium. We're so accustomed to standing and walking that our equilibrium is balanced very quickly. But as soon as we do something that our body is not accustomed to, Um, and it has to recalibrate its equilibrium to find balance. Um, 
sorry, I read that weird. So <laughs> this is where like me reading and my talking voice have to go together. So, um, yeah, but as soon as we do something that our body is not accustomed to, it has to recalibrate its equilibrium to find balance. There we go. So I'll say that again. As soon as we, as soon as we do something that our body is not accustomed to, it has to recalibrate its equilibrium to find balance. So typically what's noticed when balancing on one leg is that all of our focus is suddenly on the bottom of our foot that's planted on the ground, right? And, it, and it's quick, right? As soon, as soon as we do it, our attention's on that foot. See, even our mind has succumbed to apana, where our attention follows downward, that downward flow of energy and attention directly to our foot to ensure that we stabilize and keep balance. So this is, to me, a direct way of experiencing apana. So one, obviously, like I was mentioning earlier, your digestion. You can feel it. Nature calls. You know, you got a good sense. But in a more subtle way to get to how the apana affects the mind is by doing this thing is where we balance on one foot and we look down. And so there it is. That's the influence of apana. We're looking down. We're going with the downward flow because we need to see and we need to examine. And it's a, it's a way of like comforting the mind, right? So try standing on your foot and looking up, right? It's going to be a lot harder. So now let's do this again. Um, again, if you're in a safe place and you can do this, try balancing on your foot with your eyes closed. So just give it a try. Stand up, balance onto one foot. But before you balance, close your eyes, balance on one foot. What happens? It's even harder to balance. Why is that? We are typically dependent on our vision and following the downward flow that typically when we balance on one foot, we look down and that helps establish that we are in control of maintaining the balance. That's what that is. We want to see that we are in control. When we close our eyes, that control is taken away. It's lost. And the downward force can't be followed in our sense of stability and balance come becomes sort of chaotic right so and you feel that right you're balancing on one foot you have your eyes closed all of a sudden it's like the brain goes nuts and it doesn't know what to do um and so luckily for you in this case practicing yoga in this way more with your eyes closed is going to help establish a stronger, subtle connection with your apana and with these prana values. And so you'll get to the point where you can do more complicated one-legged postures with your eyes closed. You can do tree pose. Um, you can do um, warrior three postures. And, <clears throat> and it's because your attention isn't on strictly balance it's on how these prana values flow so you'll really be able to tune into how when you shift your focus on your say you're standing on your left leg you shift your focus on your left leg and you have your eyes closed and you lift your right knee up 
you'll naturally develop develop the process of quickly grounding down through your left leg, lifting up through the left arch, slight inward rotation of the left thigh, stabilization of the hips, activation of the right foot. So you'll see how that downward force is happening so fast. It's going down into your foot. Everything is stabilizing in your foot. You know, you, you might still have movement kind of rocking side to side because your body's just naturally going to do that. It's going to stimulate muscles to maintain stability and balance, but your ankle is going to be solid. Your arch and your foot is going to be lifted. Your calf is going to be solid. Your quads are going to be solid. Your hips are going to be stable. And so then that becomes the response to the chaos that would happen when you're new to it, when you're just trying this out, like say just moments ago, right? And so now to go even, to go into even more subtle senses of, of Samana or not Samana. Um, sorry. I was just reading that on the, on the translation website. Um, Apana, that we start to introduce pranayama and pranayama just simply means uh, life force control or life force constraint because prana means life force and yama means um, restraint you know what I'm gonna look up what yama means right now. So yeah, exactly. Restraint. Um, otherwise, uh, control of the inner senses, uh, forbearance. Um, yama is also an, an entity, apparently, um, in yogic fork, for, for, uh, fork. <laughs> Hulk lore, uh, the god of death. And um, yeah, but uh, mainly restraint. So life force restraints. So isn't that interesting that we associate pranayama with breath work? So why is that? Well, the breath and the, our breathing faculty is the closest we get to having any kind of control of our prana. And so we can utilize particular pranayama techniques, certain breathing techniques, to start to... Um, I want to say manipulate, but manipulate is not the right word. Um, more of uh, of a way to affect how, let's say in this case, a panavayu is going to behave in the body. So what I wrote here is um, 
Pranayama contributes to a more subtle sense of apanavayu. Now you're dealing with breath work and using breathing techniques to influence the effectiveness of pranavayu. So pranavayu isn't static, right? It only becomes static when it becomes stagnant and becomes lethargic. It becomes so slow moving that it's, it has negative effects. So it can, be, it can be strong or weak, slow or fast, and what changes its output is how we treat our body. So like I was saying earlier, um, you know, being lethargic, eating too much, eating unhealthy foods like overprocessed foods and fast foods, um, smoking, and even having negative attitudes and beliefs can slow down, weaken, and contort upon a value to have more negative effects in the body. So there are pranayamas, pranayamas that I do um, that are some of my favorite that I found um, have great and lasting effects. Um, and so doing strong, some strong pranayama like bastrika. So bastrika is a bellow. So think of like um, an, uh, a blacksmith when they are pumping air into their kiln. They have uh, a big bellow. So bastrika is bellow. Um, and Kapalabhati, Kapalabhati just translates to skull shining breath. And so these two can increase the strength of apana in the body. So remember, like I was saying, with someone who might be, um, who might have a weak apana, um, and they're super flighty and they're ungrounded. For them, doing Bastrika and Kapalabhati will make them even more flighty. So it's the the people who have a heavy apana i don't want to say a strong apana but it's a heavier apana it's a more lethargic it's slower um bastrika and kapalabhati will be perfect for them um and then doing a calming pranayama like analoma viloma analoma viloma is alternate nostril breathing and so essentially um you're just inhaling and exhale one nostril at a time and it's calm it's smooth it's silent where Bastrika and Kapalabhati are loud and powerful you're breathing actively through your nostrils um, where Analoma Viloma you're breathing through your nostrils but it's calm and smooth and so Analoma Viloma will actually be really good for the flighty weaker um, upon a people um, because it's going to help them get back into their um, parasympathetic nervous system. It's going to help them with things like, you know, I would say low-grade insomnia. You know, um, it's going to help them with um, lacking focus. And uh, and again, I always say this: take this stuff with a grain of salt. Um, these things aren't meant to immediately showcase results to relieve conditions or to relieve conditions that, um, need some kind of medical, um, intervention, right? So if we're talking about someone with um, depression, right? So say if they're lethargic because they have some kind of depression, 
is doing Bastrika and Kapalabhati going to alleviate and cure their depression? In the first time ever doing it? No. Right? If the other person who's flighty and unfocused and they have ADHD, is Analoma Veloma going to suddenly cure? No. But, but, doing these practices regularly, preferably every day, you will see results. You will notice differences. Because you got to think of your brain, especially your brain in this case, It's operating in your day-to-day function. A good part of its function is from how much oxygen it gets. So if you're day-to-day and you are breathing a particular breathing pattern every day, day in, day out, your brain is going to develop in a particular way from the amount of oxygen that it's getting. And your lungs and your heart and your blood and the rest of your body is going to get a kind of oxygen exchange to a certain degree based on how you're breathing. So when you introduce a new way of breathing, right? So say I'm going to back up from my mic a little bit so I just don't blow your eardrums with my breath. So if I'm just breathing like this, normal breathing but then I introduce a breathing technique like this so that's Kapalabhati active exhale passive inhale pulse of the stomach in on the exhale and I'm doing that breathing technique every day three to five rounds a day for at least a minute per round. So five minutes. And I do that every day. Your brain is going to operate slightly different, slightly differently in those five minutes because of the change in your breathing pattern. That your brain and how it's receiving oxygen is different than your day-to-day and so you can experiment with this so just like how you can experiment with standing on one foot closing your eyes looking down you can kind of get a sense oh, okay this is how Apana is working so depending on who you are as a person say if you're more of the lethargic side and you're like man I just like I want to get out of this funk try Kapalabhati and I'll have links to my teacher's YouTube videos. I really should be on top of this and have my own freaking YouTube videos. <laughs> but I'm just getting back to all this. So, um, but um, my teacher, Yoga Rishi Vishvagetu, he has YouTube videos. So I'll put the YouTube videos of these three. I'm pretty sure he has these three practices. Um, and so you can see and you can try it out. That's the great thing about yoga is largely it's experimental like 
you don't necessarily need to sit down for two hours and do this whole thing and and be like oh this is this is how it's meant to be like or this is what it means to be a yogi to me i saw as it more of like a in a scientific approach of developing hypotheses and theories and experimenting so when i took on these practices and i was looking at kapalabhati i looked at it through the lens of experimentation okay what if i exhale very strongly like as strong as i can and just go and go and go and go and go and don't stop and see what happens with the body see what happens with the mind when does it start to kick in where the mind goes okay i've had enough or the body says i've had enough or instead of doing really quick i'm gonna drag it out a little bit do longer breaths slow it down a little bit and so you can get a sense of how these techniques work by just simply playing around with them and again especially with pranayama that's a nice thing is you can kind of do it anywhere like all if i'm kind of falling asleep a little bit and i'm driving a lot and i'm getting a little bit fatigued i'll start doing kapalabhati and i'll start really focusing on strong breathing and it actually helps wake me up it doesn't work every time but um i have found in this sense of experimentation that it can work and that's really the beautiful thing of yoga viewed as a science is that really the only way to get the answers to whether or not this you just have to do it um and it's and it's kind of the opposite role of scientists and doctors right say if you having are you're having some issues with your digestion right you go to your doctor and you're like i want nutritional advice your doctor is going to say well i can't tell you anything they're going to send you to a dietitian or they'll say eh there's nothing really wrong with you your blood pressure is good you know your cholesterol is good um you know uh maybe they'll subscribe or they'll prescribe some medication for you and likewise with scientists th- their role is not to be the one who experiences things they're only the observer of things so they'll only ever make conclusions on something that happens outside of themselves and then they can show and prove but the role of like this science yogi is the opposite like we're going inwards to have these experiences ourselves and to come to conclusions about our own body and how it works so you got to remember we are the biological technology on this planet we're the biological machines we are the bio intelligence so if 
Robots are the AI. We are the BI. We're the bi. <laughs> we're bi. <laughs> so we're the biological intelligence. And so when you consider this body as a machine now, look at it as a machine. It's operating as a biological machine. And that the yoga practice is to give you a slice of time to forget about your desires, forget about your job, forget about your family, forget about your friends, forget about all those attachments you have just for this moment. Yoga is not asking you to abandon everything. And no, 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 no. Just for a slice of time in your day, sit down with yourself, do a physical practice, go through some movement, work out any little kinks and little points of stress and tension and, and stiffness and get to the point where the movement is, is heating up your body and you're feeling yourself getting a little bit stronger, more flexible. Um, it's, it's, working on your endocrine system it's working on your hormones it's it's working on all these deeper layers within your within this machine you're actually like scrubbing from the inside this machine by doing these practices to the point where when you get to the your pranayama and you're doing these breathing techniques that you're utilizing this machine in a very different way than what we are accustomed to so what we're accustomed to is like waking up in the morning and our first drive to do anything is to like wake up and go to work wake up and go to school wake up go to the bathroom go to the kitchen make breakfast play on your phone look at news go into your car drive to work drive to school wherever right that what yoga is asking is before any of that happens, before you do any of that, you go to your mat, you sit down, you do your asana practice, you do some stretching, you do your pranayama. And what you're establishing is that you're utilizing the physical, mental, and spiritual function of your body to understand something about yourself that all that other stuff can't tell you. Your job can't tell you about how the inner workings of your of your body, your body. I'm not saying like, yes, you can go to a doctor that knows everything about the human body and its anatomy. That's not what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm talking about when you're seated and you're doing these pranayama practices, you're doing bastrika, you're doing analoma, or kapalabhati and analoma biloma. And you're witnessing and you're watching and observing how the air flows through you. So when you start doing kapalabhati and it's, and it's rigid and it's weird and you can't get the rhythm and breathing through your nose is awkward because one nostril is plugged and the other one isn't. And, but you'll see how your critical mind is going to try to pick all that stuff apart and it's going to try to 
tell you that you shouldn't do this stuff because, oh, my nose is blocked. How am I supposed to breathe? Through? And no, no, no. You keep, there's so many times where my nose is fully plugged and I still do it. I blow my nose. I keep going through it. I keep going through it. I keep going through it. Because the point is to do and have this experience of being in this pranayama and allowing it to work and go and you just observe to the point where, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I get this when I'm reading sometimes. If I'm really captivated into a book that I almost disassociate from the reading voice and the reading voice goes on autopilot and I'm almost suddenly in a meditative state. I'm watching myself read. And instead of focusing on the words, suddenly I'm seeing what I'm reading. And the reading voice is still going and I don't have to do the reading voice anymore. The reading voice does itself and I get to just sit and watch the images of what I'm reading. So a similar thing will happen in these practices where you're flowing through the asana practice and you've done it so many times and it gets to such a point where you're taking a step back and you're watching and you'll be in a balanced posture and be like, oh, I always do the balanced posture this way. What if I do this with my foot? What if I do this with my hand? And then suddenly you'll start to move the body in a different way in this like kind of dissociated place. Um, and disassociation in this way is not a negative thing. It's not like disassociative personality disorder or something. I just mean that you're taking a step back and you're allowing the body to move without thinking that you're in control of it. And the same with like a breathing technique, like Kabbalah Bhati, you're doing this There'll be a point where you're so used to the rhythm of it that the breathing technique will just keep going and 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 keep going. Because remember, you're breathing, but because breath is associated with brainwave state, that the Kapalabhati can put you into a different brainwave state. And how you think and what you think is going to change. It's going to be altered because your normal unconscious autonomic breathing is tied to the way that your beta brainwave state operates in your conscious day-to-day living. And so when you stop your autonomic breathing and you introduce a controlled breathing that you are deliberately doing, you start to have access to different brainwave states. And so now when we think of um, a vayu, and we start to know what um, quality a vayu is in our body, we can use these postures and these breathing techniques and we can use this knowledge that, oh, when I'm doing this breathing technique, I'm entering into a different brainwave state and I'm entering into a different kind of state of consciousness. Then you can apply the awareness of apana and you can directly experience the energetic flow of it from that state of consciousness. That when you're in your daily waking 
beta state of consciousness, you're going to have belief systems and attitudes and personality traits that are going to try to negate that experience, right? Your brain is very protective of these things. And so you have to trick the brain. And so you have to introduce a whole new way of breathing. And that's what these pranayama are doing. And so when you're doing Kapalabhati, you're feeling the pulse of the stomach. You're feeling how the exhale is pushing down, right? Because the emphasis is on the exhale. And like um, the definition said, here, I'm going to pull it up again. Up on the downgoing breath, right? The nerve current which governs the abdominal region, which has its center in the anus, it does excretory function of the fecal matter. It works for ejection, the downgoing breath. So try this out. Experiment with it. Um, it's always interesting. I always think that I don't write enough content, but um, look at that. It's been 52 minutes, and uh, an hour goes by pretty quick. But, um, yeah, I think to to sort of wrap this up is um, the only way that these systems are, are going to work and um, are going to make sense is by doing the practices. So again, um, I will link um, a few videos from my teacher uh, from his YouTube channel um, so that you can see what the, what the practice looks like. Um, I am going to open myself up to one-on-one, -on -one, um, practices as well. So if you are interested in learning from me, I will have a tab on my website, um, soon that, uh, will allow you to, um, book, um, classes with me. So I'm going to, I'm just going to start with one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and, uh, what I'll do is I, I can do it through zoom. Um, I can do it in person if you are in Edmonton where I'm from, but if you're not and you want to do a one-on-one -on -one session, um, I'm going to make it as affordable as possible. Um, luckily for me, I have a day job. It takes care of all my bills. And so my goal with this kind of stuff is to offer it as affordably as possible. So like having this podcast and putting out content for free, um, and then doing one-on-one -on -one sessions, like, especially if it's over zoom and it's like a 30 minute thing, you know, I probably charge like, I don't know, like 20 to 30 bucks or something. But, um, yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day.
You've taken all you 